this morning, our reading is going to be uh, done for us by Moni and Deepo Kaladi, and I'm going to ask them if they'd like to come and sit at the front and grab the mic from Pastor Graham here. And they're going to read it um, in a way that they've decided to read it, and uh, thank you for being willing to do that. And what they're going to do is they're going to read sections of the readings, quite a, a lengthy piece of scripture. So we're going to have, you know, several verses they're going to read that, and then we'll chat about those and then several more verses and we'll chat about those. That's how we're going to go through this. But it's the story of the, of the woman who comes to uh, a well. And it, this story is it's kind of like one of those archetypal stories of human experience. And the story is that she comes by herself in the heat of the day and walking alone, how many times has she done that? And she comes to that well by herself and you can imagine how many times she must have looked down because she describes the well as deep, deep. And she would look down and she would see her reflection Small, insignificant, with the midday sun behind her, as it were. Just that little reflection of herself at the bottom. And that is such a powerful image to us of how in our lives at some time or other, we find ourselves psychologically, if not physically and socially, alone. In our own thoughts, wrestling with a life that we did not want. Her life was not something she chose consciously. If you'd asked her, was, did, has your life worked out the way you hoped it would work out when you were 16? She would say, no, 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 not at all. And many people come to that time in their lives where they, they realize that they are not in control of their life and that it's going in directions that they didn't hope or plan for. And, and so the story is of a person who's made this journey many times before. That's the thing. And that's so like human nature that, that we, we have this well-worn track psychologically of going over our life and reflecting on it uh, like in the well, in the deep well. You know, there's, it's sort of somehow or other beyond our reach, this, this thing. And, and the thing about this story is that while so many people tell the story and then nothing, as it were, it's like they fade away, this woman has this incredible encounter, something that she didn't plan or expect. She meets Jesus at the place of her deepest sadness. In the ancient world, and still in some cultures, a well or a spring is a spiritual place. And we still have it in our culture, the wishing well. You'll go to a garden somewhere and you'll find a wishing well because it symbolizes this experience that usually in the ancient world it involved a bit of a walk 
and you walked as you walked, you were conscious of the fact that you were going to do something to get water that you desperately needed as an individual or as a household. And you would stop, as it were, and you would sort of reflect on how many times you've done this and how your life is going. Let's hear the reading. John chapter 4, verse 4. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to get to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. As I've been thinking about this story, a a couple of pairs of ideas came to me um, in, I trust, prayerful communication with God. And the first one we're going to talk about is how we pick up in that reading how she's most surprised that this Jew would talk to her. And she's referencing the fact that there was, as it says in the passage we've just heard, Jews Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. They had absolutely none. And this brings up to her mind the, the prejudice that has existed between her nations for generations, for centuries. And it's personal for her, you know. It's not just a theoretical thing but she's living that sense of prejudice and discrimination and I define prejudice for this purpose anyway that prejudice is kind of more the emotion that we feel towards somebody that um, rises up within us and we kind of they symbolize something that we feel um, uh, is somehow unacceptable Um, whereas discrimination is where we actively plan to uh, deny them their rights and their opportunities so uh, Jews, and as you can see here, she, the, John makes the reference there that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And, and there was a history to this. The, the history went back an awful long way. It, the nation of Israel was, was, uh, was sort of uh, broken up uh, in about 920 BC, just at the death of Solomon. Um, the northern tribes seceded. They, they couldn't handle his son, uh, Rehoboam, as king. And so they they broke away and they formed a nation of their own. And 200 years later, um, the world had changed very dramatically and the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh, where the Kurds live, up there in Mosul and Nineveh, names that we've heard um, for, uh, in, the, in the troubles in Iraq, um, that, that was where Nineveh is, the ruins are still there. And um, uh, that nation had risen to power in the region and it came down and it, it took uh, the people of, um, of the Northern Kingdom uh, captive and took them away into the region um, where we would now think of Kurdistan. And it took people from uh, the, the, the area to the south of Nineveh between the two rivers, uh, Tigris and the Euphrates, and resettled them in, in the Northern Kingdom area. And these people were deep pagans. Their, um, their, their lead god was a, a god called Adramelech, and if you want to go and look that up, 
later to just see what a horrifying demonic personality uh, their God represented. And um, they, uh, they came and, of course, it was such a shock to uh, the southern kingdom to have such pagans on their northern boundary. And, um, uh, and after a while, they, they were having so much trouble, uh, they sent back, they sent t- uh, for, uh, for the government to send priests from the northern tribes to come back and to help them to deal with the spiritual and the social stuff and the, the natural, they were being killed by lions and things like that. They didn't know how to live in the land. They needed somebody to instruct them. So these people came back and they brought their old, uh, their old kind of um, syncretistic um, religion with them and it was just such a mess religiously, religiously and socially in that part so already there was this animosity and then then the southern kingdoms taken into captivity in in, in, around about 600 bc and when they come back in uh, 530 the samaritans uh, resist their resettlement forcefully you know so there's a deep history here you know um, uh, it takes quite a while and in the end the jews decided they would have no social uh, dealings whatsoever with uh, the samaritans and, um, and, you know, we're so conscious of the fact that we are dealing today with prejudice and discrimination, aren't we? It's a different, um, it manifests differently, but it's very much a part of our culture. It's very much a part of our world. And there are social forces that are trying to address this and trying to make for a fairer, uh, a fairer world. Um, and that process is never easy. It's always a kind of a forced process because if it isn't forced, nothing changes. So the people who want to change the, the, the institutional racism or the institutional discrimination, they, they push harder than, 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 the, than the average person would like them to push. But that's how the change occurs. And the legal process that is accompanying that process is rarely fair either because the legal process is how they get kind of the best deal out of a very complicated situation where some people don't want social mores to change and other people say they really must you know and so we we find ourselves in the you know looking as christians at these sort of uh, battles and very often sort of saying what do we win and lose in this deal and if we feel that we're losing some of our own privileges and some of our own freedoms then we kind of get resentful of it and we find ourselves unconsciously taking sides one way or the other you know what I'm talking about, don't you? This is the kind of thing that's going on in our society today. And uh, so in our society today, we, we might find ourselves not necessarily uh, w- with that woman coming down to the well on her own, you know, reflecting on her life, but we might find somebody else from another prejudiced or, uh, or discriminated community coming down and sitting there. And, 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 and we have to say to ourselves, how would we manage that situation? And how do we manage that today? You know, when I was thinking about this, I was surprised at the way in which... Um, um, uh, what came to my mind was... <laughs> okay, you might like to pick something up because you might want to throw it at me in a minute so um you know just something nice and soft all right um you know there's a tendency for us like for instance when we've been preparing for 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 easter to be thinking about the things that we give up and and that's come up quite a few times in the service already the things that we've been giving up as a form of preparation for our our approach to easter you know 
And um, what I would ask you to do is to say, well, there's some real value in that because we find that we do need to exercise great disciplines and things like that. But I would suggest to you that the issues that we really need to be giving up are things like prejudice. We, if, we, if we're going to give anything up, it should be about what we're prejudiced about and who we're prejudiced toward. And, and what I'm asking you to consider here today is whatever else you might be giving up, whether it's chocolate or coffee or whatever, I'd ask you to connect that to the thing that maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about today. And so when you get the craving for chocolate, pray for the person or the person groups that you feel somehow or other are not as fully human as you are. Okay? Because I, that's the true repentance that we've been called to. We're not being asked to come to a repentance that's just dealing with our own personal psychological happiness because we, after all, have been a bit addicted to coffee. You know? And we feel so much better that we actually conquered it and brought it down. That's not what the Holy Spirit is asking of us. What he's asking for us is to create ways by which people who are desperately searching, they are walking through a dry, dry world to a deep, deep well. And that's why we're in the world. To meet them. One on one in a private conversation where the issues are depoliticized, they're just personal. And I'm not looking at you because of your race or your gender or your sexuality. I'm looking at you as a person God loves. So there's always a history to prejudice and discrimination and it's usually based and almost always on poor communication and misunderstanding. And there are secondary issues that then get attached to justify the, the prejudice that we have and they lead to the dehumanization of that person. And so I ask you, do you have a visceral reaction to anybody? Is there anybody else that, any, that does that to you? You can't, you're surprised because they've got tattoos all over them or because they're rampantly something else in terms of their gender identification or whatever. Or their race. You know, in Africa, unconsciously, we as white people that lived in South Africa, we used to find this magnificent, beautiful complexion quite challenging because we were so different. But when you get to know them, <laughs> it's so wonderful. Their otherness is so enriching. Pardon me. That wasn't the reason why I asked you Thank to you read. <laughs> but I thought afterwards, what a great coincidence. <laughs> Would you like to take us to the next bit, please, Deepa? Thank you, Charles. <laughs> oh, well, before you do, do you have another reaction of wishing that things were different? Yeah. When you're in that visceral situation and you're feeling that prejudice, is, does it ever cross your mind that you just wished you were different and that things were different? 
and that somehow or other we could find a meeting of hearts and minds and we could talk this out and work out how to live as brothers and sisters in such a broken world. Thank you. You can see why we've been in this church for 30-something years. <laughs> Jesus answered her, if you know the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you will have asked him and he will have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself um, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never be th uh, thirsty. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. The next pairing, uh, I'm going to leave the scripture up there, but the next pairing of ideas that came to me was this, the kind of um, death and life thing. You know, what a strange binary reality there is. Either we're alive or we're dead. And in this story, we see uh, uh, this woman coming for water um, because she's reliant upon it. She knows if she doesn't get it, she dies. And the plants in the garden die and everything dies. <laughs> you know, so she's reliant upon that water. And the fact is that uh, we, I want to talk about death um, for a moment. That death um, is not just those final last breaths, but that death is everywhere. Wherever life is, there is death. You know, we are constantly, uh, uh, if we pay attention, we are seeing on the forest floor, you know, the trees that, that have uh, passed before and that are offering themselves now as humus uh, to the ones that are alive. You know, there's... There's all sorts of evidences of death in our own physical frame and body and in our lack of memory or whatever it is. It's, it's everywhere uh, in the world. And, and in this story, you see that, um, that she, is a, she, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't have to keep coming here to draw. You know, she's saying, I, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a slave to my mortality. You know, and it's complicated for me. It's socially complicated and it's a real pain in the heat of summer as I stave off death, as I do what I have to do to, to hold death at bay just as long as I can. And this story is, is not just about physical death. You know, it's, as I was thinking about it, she was talking uh, more about uh, the death of, and you'll see, you'll see how it unpacks that she's talking more about the death of her hopes and her dreams uh, of, of love, of, of companionship, 
of so many other things are dying in her life that she has to live with and somehow or other uh, keep going. And isn't that the story of so many people in the world today? That journey to the well, you know, in their experience is because of the fact that they just have to keep going. And they're in a job they hate. They're probably in a relationship they hate. You know, they've, they've just stuffed up so many other things, but they've just got to keep going. Because death is, physical death is coming, but its reach has already come in their lives in so many other ways. So it's everywhere, in every living thing. And physical death, this is an important point though, that physical death is not the end. And it does not end self-consciousness. This is the thing that people are living with this tormented soul. And as they approach death, they hope that, that at least that soul will be snuffed out. It's not the case. It's not the case. As you die, so you enter into eternity. What a thought. See, when Christ comes to, into our lives, he comes to save us not just from the inconveniences of this life, but he comes to give us hope and joy and release and freedom for what comes after this life. That's, that's, a big, that's the big thing. We're just, in the, we're just in the front room here, in the, in the porch, as it were. And I suggest to you that actually death is the dominant background anxiety in society. That people are, are not consciously thinking about it, but they are unconsciously always acting to try to push it away. And we see here that life is mo more than biology. It's not just about keeping your body going. It's about keeping your hope going. It's about keeping your sense of joy going. You know, your reason to get up in the morning. You know, your joy at the end of the day. And that we learn from this passage and so much else in the scripture that natural life is just a shadow of the afterlife. That it's telling us that surely this is not all that we have. And the key thing in this particular passage is Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, not just for you, but for every human being, this story, so far as the people, uh, the conservative people are concerned, is this person is right out on the fringe of acceptability. She is right, you know, I mean, you, you, we wouldn't have her in our church type thing. Five marriages, you know, type thing. She's a risk socially. That's what the community no doubt felt. You know. So she's right out there and Jesus meets her privately, so graciously. He doesn't say, I've got a word. There's a woman here who's had five marriages and the bloke you're with now, you're just shacked up with him. Come out here, please. He doesn't do that. He just meets her quietly and deals with a broken heart. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he wonderful? Next reading. Okay. Verse 16. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can say that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you just claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, 
Jesus said, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from Jews. Yet a time is coming and has not come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. This, this bit of the story is, is, is fascinating because of what it doesn't say. Jesus says, the fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man that is, you, know, you, you now have is not your husband. It doesn't tell us anything more. There's, there's history there, isn't there? And she's probably implicated in that. She's not a perfect person, you know, but by any means, you know. But I'm sure, and we'll see by the rest of what the, the dialogue, that, that, that there was a lot more that went between them. But he doesn't have it written down because it's private. He's just dealing with the private agonies of the human heart. That's the first thing. And then the second thing he talks about there, he says, he says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. What he means by that is this. He's saying that they inherited a kind of very syncretistic idea about who God was, like so many people in the world. But it was not their story. It was not their national story. And it was not their personal story either. So they could never really own it. And that's like so many people in our society, you know, that the, that the Christian gospel, with all its glory, is not their story. Yeah. So it just sounds like judgment. But it says here, um, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. It's our story. You know, we as a nation, we've walked this road with Yahweh. And this is how he's dealt with us, generation after generation. So we know the story, and it came out. It's being, we are the kind of test patch. We're the sample group in which this was being done. A time is coming and now has come when the true worshippers, what a phrase, the true worshippers. Jesus uses that. He's, he says that worship is a very discerning and discriminating exercise. And that it, it, it's, it's, it's something that is, as he says, it's not from the emotions necessarily. Although the emotions may well be involved. But it's from deeper than the emotion. And it's in pursuit of the truth. It is, it's shining the light of God and grace into our hearts in order to bring us into the light of the living Savior that we're worshipping and adoring. It's, it's a purifying experience the very nature of christ is being is being is being massaged into us as we worship but really what this is about is in her experience it's about her worth and the truth about her life her rejection and abandonment produced in her a worthlessness. She was finished with marriage. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to do that again. You know, in her sense of herself, she, she wasn't 
fit for that. Or for the love of any man, really. So this is a, a relationship of convenience or something. And worth and true reality are, as anxiety, death is the great background anxiety, our value, our worth, is the background longing. It's the background longing. It's the underlying longing. Who is going to give us that sense of our value and our, and our, our true reality? Who are we really? And we see this going on in our society all the time. Who has the authority to say the words into our heart that settle this issue for us? In the end, because we can't find anybody who settles it. Um, in fact, they do. They find this ideology and that ideology, this definition and that definition. You know, but really, it doesn't settle it. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can give us that sense of quiet satisfaction about who we are as people, not by our own measure or by society's measure, but by our loving Father's measure. So we derive our self-worth and our self-truth, the truth about ourselves, is uh, from the, the one we value most. And that's when we talk about, when Jesus talks about worship, when he says the Father seeks these people who, to worship, what he's talking about is he's not talking about God's psychological need for worship. He's talking about the fact that, that it's only when we come to the realization of how great the Father is, not just in his great genius as, as creator, etc., but as, his, as a father, how much he loves us and the whole world. When we come into a relationship with that, how are we going to find that unless we draw near? And when we draw near, what happens to us and in us then is he communicates that into, a personal, into us personally and it becomes the nature of our relationship. So worship is about formation. Worship is about lifting those people who are without worth and without truth, lifting them out of that and anchoring them in the Father's love. So he doesn't say, worship me because I need it. He says, worship me because you need it. Here's the next reading. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one you speak, speaking to you, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Only one phrase here. See the man who told me everything I ever did. What this means is he did not just rehearse and recite my whole history. He made sense of it. 
he told it to me in a way that explained how I got into this mess and how I can get out of it. He's not trying to rub in the terrible story of our many sins. He's there to rub out the pain and the grief of it. Today, I think it's inevitable that maybe some of us can really own this story for ourselves. And this is the conclusion that I'd like to bring you to. If you have this, the, the communion emblems, I ask you to take them up and just to hold that and just look at it for a moment. Because what it does is, it reminds us that Christ has come to our well. He's come, he's come to our well. He's come to us. And why we do this is to be reminded that he is with us. We're not on our own. He is with us. These physical symbols are just the shadow of the reality of his presence. You might want to open it up. you hold these symbols of his body and his blood you hold in the body you you hold the symbol of his commitment to you in the material world in this life he cares about you now he cares about you now in your in your physical life you've experienced a lot of things some of them are even wrong something are still painful he died for us he died for us in this life in order that he might be able to come to the well of our current experience. And as you take it, this in your mouth today, and just let it rest on your tongue. He's close to you now to address the things that worry you and that concern you about your present circumstance. Whatever is on your heart and mind as you sit by your well today, you are not alone. He is with you. He is with you actively. You don't have to try to trust him and try and find the power of faith and all that sort of stuff. You just have to be quiet and accept the fact that he is with you and he's got it sorted and trust him with that. And the Jews... is a symbol of his blood in the old ways what this meant was it, it represents the eternal nature of that relationship the, it's not just for now but forever for the afterlife as well that's how it's characterized finally I'm no longer alone I'm no longer a mess I am safe in the loving arms of my God and Savior through Jesus Christ and I am going to celebrate that in this covenant drink right now.
Now, finally, as we just sing this sort of song, you know, the thing I love about this story is I love this story because it's so personal between two people in a private place. And it isn't characterized by huge miracles. It's characterized by a, a, a sensitive, personal conversation. That's the miracle of it. That that released that woman into an entirely new life. And she, she shared that freedom.